Hello, my name is Chantel. And my name is Cameron. And we're excited to bring you a brand new podcast funded by UCL Changemakers called Trailblazing Voices. Trailblazing Voices is a podcast series that introduces political science students to diverse, underrepresented perspectives by featuring notable academics and practitioners in political science and public policy from traditionally underrepresented countries and backgrounds. This podcast was inspired by the findings of the UCL Inclusive Curriculum Project. If you want more details about the project, you'll find an overview of the findings on our Instagram page at Trailblazing Voices Podcast. Major credit to Kathy Elliott for working with us to make this happen. Before each interview, students and staff can send in questions they would like answered by the guests for a holistic experience. You can find this recording wherever you listen to podcasts. And let's start the show. Welcome back to part two of our student roundtable discussion. We're excited to continue the conversation and stay tuned for interesting thoughts and opinions on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Great. So we're going to go into the next question, actually. And that is, um, do you feel like your background or country of origin was adequately represented in the political science and public policy fields? And why not? And should it matter? I'm going to jump in only because my country was overrepresented. <laughs> and um, I, being an African American Black woman, whatever, right? Well, not whatever, you know, it's different growing up in the US because a lot of African Americans in the United States have don't know their origin unless you go through DNA tests and all of that stuff, right? And so for me, my country of origin until I go decide if I want to do that would be um, the United States. And um, I just found that being from the United States, going to a school in a different country, everybody wants to know the perspective of the United States. And oh, and, and I live, you know, out like in DC, out right outside of DC, whatever. And I knew I've worked on Capitol Hill and all that stuff. So it's like, all of these questions are coming to you about, oh, well, you guys did this and you did that. And, you know, why did this happen? And oh my gosh, January 6th. Then, you know, there's like a whole bunch of questions um, that tend to come to, or at least I found that a lot of questions kind of came from me, came to me um, being from the United States and because of where I live. And um, whereas I wanted to know more, and the reason why I went to an international school was specifically so I could learn more about other backgrounds, ethnicities, other countries, what, you know, just expand my knowledge, right? Not just from like readings and lectures and things, but from my peers who I know are living in different countries who are going through different things and getting their perspectives on things because on policy, what does that look like? Because in the US, well, I already, we already talked so much about, I already have, for 22 years have talked about the US and foreign policy and know what it's like. And so I definitely would say that we, I felt, I think, I guess in international relations though, you can't really talk much about anything without the United States being involved. And that's just the case. But I do feel like at some point in IA, we are gonna have to figure out how to center other voices in countries and really talk about, you know, just, what we talk about what the U.S. has done and how, why they did that to get to that certain point and then center around those voices, right? So I know um, 
just, I remember, I think January 6th had happened and there was kind of a lot of interesting conversations happening within like um, the International Public Policy Program and certain people had very strong feelings about, you know, well, you know, you guys kind of deserve that because of, you know, certain things that have happened in my country that, you know, the US, it's your guys' fault. And it's like, well, it's not my fault, you know, it's X, Y, and Z's fault. Or, and then it becomes very tension. It, there becomes a lot of tension, I feel like. But I feel like that's what that's what happens when you we center so many of our conversations around what the U.S. has done. We don't talk so much about, OK, well, what were these countries like before we came in and decided that they needed a new government or what, you know, what, you know, I just feel like there's a lot of different thoughts I have on this. But essentially, I wanted to only go first because I wanted to kind of step away from this question just because I don't want to offer like another U.S. centric perspective when that's usually all we ever talk about anyway. So I really am interested to hear when, what everyone else has to say. Um, so yeah. Thank you so much for sharing, Amon. And I also, um, part of the question was um, your background as well. So it doesn't necessarily have to be focused on the country because I know the whole panel is from the US and the UK. So um, for the most part, but um, yeah, that's that's an excellent point. It, it was to my surprise getting an article that was focusing on Biden's foreign policy plan when I was um, in one of my classes. And I was like, oh wait, like, and everything was very much like, oh, what is the US doing? What is the US doing? And I'm like, oh my God, I, I left the US for a reason. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, no, definitely. Uh, are there any other perspectives or anyone else want to add to what Aman said? So I've got a slightly, I don't know, maybe different perspective. And I don't know if this is up for, I'll probably leave this up to the field to, to kind of debate if anybody has a different view. Uh, happy to hear. But I think, you know, was my background uh, adequately, um, you know, represented across the range of modules that I did this year? No but really should it have been? Um, there's 193 UN member states. You know, you're part of the same course as I am. You know how incredibly diverse our student body is. You have two methods modules and a dissertation that leaves, what, four or five modules to cover how much of the world in how much detail. Um, and the point of our course is to sort of equip us with skills, right? Like it's not, that one of the main things in the course isn't to try and cover as many uh, different backgrounds, ethnicities as possible. It'd be nice if they did that, but that's not one of the core aims. Um, and I feel like touching on why maybe the US is kind of overrepresented. I think this year China was as well, slightly as well, but because of the nature we do for doing international affairs, they're the two global hegemons in the world right now. So a lot of what goes on is determined by the choices that these two states make in particular. So there is a reason why we have to pay a certain amount of attention to those states and their behaviors. I can remember the simulation. So we did, for the listeners at home, we did a simulation in first semester. And a lot of the decisions that other states were making were based on the decisions that China and US had to had, were making. And it's, it's a necessity because that's how it reflects in, in real life. This is how states how states behave. They have to react to the behavior of stronger states. And that's quite a bleak and realist interpretation of international relations, but that's kind of how it works. So um, as far as my background being represented, I feel like in different spurts, different ethnicities or different uh, backgrounds were touched upon. I think maybe not in as much detail as we'd liked, but I think the nature of what we're studying means that there almost has to be, or it almost necessitates a sort of focus on uh, stronger states. Um, but that varies module to module. I think in certain modules, if you're looking at other things like development um, and things like that, then maybe 
that the same isn't as true if you're looking at something region specific that might not be as true but um just on the whole especially for like ir fpa um you have to take into account the relative size and strength of these countries fabulous thank you any other um additional um yvonne yeah go ahead i i actually uh agree agree with elements of that mostly because uh, you know, for, for context, I, I did my undergraduate at the University of Georgia in international affairs, and then I did my international policy, my master's in international policy also at the University of Georgia. And the international policy uh, degree, you know, it was it was very centered around, uh, like you said, like giving you the tools to be able to like later on deal with with uh, elements of policy, international policy and stuff like that. Um, and then the undergraduate was well, like, like I said earlier, I think it's 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 very student dependent, if, if that makes any sense. You know, uh, I'm not sure how the courses are structured in the UK, but at least at the University of Georgia, you know, you can build your own major almost like with international affairs. Like there's so many different options for classes that you have to take. You know, we only really have to take like one to two intro classes that are all kind of standardized. But other than that, you know, like if you want to take a war and human security class and never have to take anything even remotely related to environmental politics, perfect. You go for it. Um, so it's like, I think the nature of that makes it to where it's like you, you can kind of control like what you're learning and what you're not to some degree. Obviously it's at the end of the day, it's up to what the professor's choosing to teach and whatnot. Um, so it, it definitely like creates a situation where some countries or some ethnicities or some cultural backgrounds might be overrepresented or underrepresented in your curriculum because of the classes you're choosing to take. You know, for example, I, I my my interest is food politics. So I naturally took a lot of environmental politics classes, a lot of globalization classes. And it was in these courses that like, I think I started learning about, especially, you know, my, my home country, you know, like Mexico and Cuba, I started learning about these countries in a much more in a different way, you know, because uh, I think uh, in, in other courses or even, you know, when I was younger in high school, or just, you know, earlier, like we learned about Latin America in a very extractive way, you know, like we get their resources, we get their agricultural products and then we move on. But, you know, it was in these products, it was in these classes, the environmental politics classes and whatnot that, that I got to like, they were represented in a very different light, but also like that is because I chose to take these environmental politics classes. So it's like, if, if there, there, there can be students with my same major from the exact same university that don't take these classes and then they just don't learn any of these things. So uh, I definitely think that the overrepresentation over or underrepresentation of certain topics like can at least in UGA can be very student dependent. And I mean, it can, you know, I'm sure Roshi might've had a completely different experience than, than I did, but yeah. Uh, fabulous. And I think we have Roshni and then we'll have a couple more and then we'll move on to the next question because I know we're about to reach time very soon. Yeah. Okay. So I don't know if I'm taking this question a little too literally, but I do want to give my two cents on it. Um, when we were doing introductions, I mentioned that I'm Indian Muslim because being an Indian Muslim is entirely different than being a Hindu from India or a Christian from India, you know? And so in terms of seeing people that looked like me in the classroom, yeah, like South Asians, definitely, you know, had a lot of South Asian peers, South Asian professors. No, not really. If I, if I like, if I was reading literature written by a South Asian person, then chances are they're not a South Asian Muslim, specifically like an Indian Muslim. I don't think I've ever written, uh, written, read um, the work of an Indian Muslim outside of like accounts or poems, things like that. And so the reason I bring this up is because in any class, when we learned about Indian politics or just slightly touched on them, um, 
it was funny because the people that these like problematic policies in India impacted the most were not being considered in the conversation. So I'll give the example of the Citizenship Amendment Bill, CAA, and the National Registry of Citizens, the NRC in India. So essentially what these things are, they're just like tools that the government is using to kind of other the Muslims in India and how like large scale impact, they're not getting social welfare. So there are Muslim families in India who are going hungry every night. There are, you know, Muslim Indians like me who can't apply for visas to go to India or can't apply for citizenship in India uh, because of the citizenship amendment bill and the NRC. And so it's interesting to see that like, you know, in my migration class, my professor made a very deliberate effort to get my two cents on it because she knew my background. So she let me make the PowerPoint. But when we touched on it in my international law class, it was just kind of like, oh, but India is doing it so that the other religious minorities in Pakistan and Afghanistan, particularly, um, it makes it easier for them to gain Indian citizenship so they can escape uh, persecution or discrimination. But it's like, okay, yeah, definitely 100% we need that. But why are we disenfranchising a group of people in doing that, right? And like, I'm gonna stop there with like the background on that because I know we're running low on time, but it's like, that's just an example of how people are directly affected by these things, but those people are not being centered into the conversation. And it's like, if I wasn't the daughter of two Muslim Indians, then I wouldn't have known this because there's no like reliable source talking about this. It's like passed down information, like, you know, in 30 or so years, it's gonna be like, oh, this is a firsthand account. But it's like, you didn't care enough in the moment to take this firsthand account and write an article on it. Like right now, any, no, I'm not gonna say any, but a majority of the articles that surround like the plight of Muslims in India is like, they're all written by, Muslims that aren't in India. So it's kind of just like, oh, the Muslims are doing the work to like figure out what's going on. But India is a secular state. Like there is no reason that the journalism needs to be split on religion, you know? And so that definitely didn't get that in terms of content. And also, again, I feel like my university, going back to the one professor that wasn't white, um, our university just kind of like put them in a position where it's like, they were kind of like the diversity consultant. And, you know, I can go on and on and on about that because they also put that, you know, they put that weight on the students. They put that on Ivan and I this past semester. I mean, like not like put it deliberately, but it's like we joined a group and it was just kind of like, so what should we do? What should we do? And it's like the professors who were there genuinely cared. But at the end of the day, it's I'm of the opinion that like, even though we're a part of the group, it should be more of a conversation, not sort of like, hey, I'm going to consult with you on something. I also wanted to add something in. I just wanted to say that with this question, it's so interesting to me because I, I, so I'm from Nova Scotia. I lived in, I lived in Manchester for a long time, but I lived in Nova Scotia longer. So I, I, you know, I connect with it a bit more. And whenever I see this question, it's always amazing to me because I've literally been usually the only black person in my environment for a very long time. So my high school, I think had three in total out of like 600 people. And that was me and my brother and another one, <laughs> another person. And then um, I moved into university and in my, I did environmental science. And in that class, there was two of us who were black. And then I'm moving into UCL. And one of the things I wanted from UCL is like, oh God, please let me see more black people. <laughs> just, just, a, just a little bit more. <laughs> and then um, it could also be my, up, like my upbringing as well. And I went to a very small school, so that's part of it. But I never really 
you know so many people of color in one room that that was very like shocking to me so when I went to UCL it's very diverse but it's not as diverse as I thought it was going to be so I thought this curriculum I was like yes this is finally going to be you know actually global it's going to be you know more than just what we learn all the time and Amir back to your point I really do agree that the U.S. and China are you know are leading most countries politics but at the at the at a point it just comes it's I think it's up to us too to at least diversify I think I think that's it's almost like that's known that's something that we all know that does that that does you know lead most countries politics but there's so much out there that we don't know about and we'll never know about because we always have to know about the U.S and China and you know England not even the UK I couldn't tell you anything about Ireland nothing I know nothing about what goes on there I know nothing about what goes on in Scotland we just focus on England and I don't think that's like I I understand that those are the leaders but I think we're a new generation and I think we can move away from just being like okay these are the two big wigs yeah no duh but there's so many other countries that deserve attention in our in our studies that should be focused on and then back to you know we don't really see many like you know ethnicities show like represented in our um in our, our classes the teachers are amazing by the way I, I've loved every single one of my teachers at UCL but it comes to the point where like I don't blame them for you know maybe not diversifying but they they are just most of them white teachers I can't expect them to go full out their way to like try and diversify and talk about things that they don't fully know but I really want to know about the hiring practices are there enough like literally are there enough people of color applying to these institutions because it could not be like their hiring practices is that UCL is not a place that people of color want to teach at and that's something that UCL has to think about so I always think about that too like I don't blame the teachers I really even don't blame the hiring staff I blame maybe like the institution itself is this a place where people feel comfortable working or is it a place where every time they talk they're put down thanks so much for that Chantal and um just a quick fact um, about UCL so UCL is about 50 percent international students um for those who do not know um and it has I think it's a mixture of EU, um, also Chinese international students, but also in other um, like South Asia and whatnot. Um, but yeah, it's about 50% international. That's why um, you're able to access um, diverse perspectives from students a little bit easier. So that's something um, I think is a privilege, but also something that I think I missed out a lot on in my undergrad. So student-led initiatives are, are really wonderful in that sense. Um, and also, I just wanted to add, there's also emerging economies and emerging players happening in international relations that we're not talking about as much. I mean, Brazil, uh, come on, like South Africa, like India. I mean, we're not like we we talk about the U.S. and China and they're obviously very important and they're he regional hegemons like Amir said previously. But there are other players who are quickly, you know, um, raising their GDPs, you know, investing and in, like nuclear you know <laughs> their nuclear arsenal which you know uh, you know um but it's happening so um we need to be talking about them i think in that sense but great and um now we're just gonna ask our last question um so um i'm going to um take a quick turn here and we can make this really short because i know we're running short in time but um, i'm curious to know you all's opinion about social media so what role do you think social media plays in political discourse? Do you believe it promotes diversity, equity, and inclusion, or inhibits it? Um, so yeah, based off of your experiences, uh, Twitter, Facebook, I don't know if anybody, do you guys use Facebook? I, 
anyway, um, yeah, so uh, Shabdam, can you start us off and then Roshni? Yeah, I think recently with the pandemic, social media has really enhanced racism from what I can see as well, um, particularly Islamophobia, which I'm really interested in and writing my dissertation on this. Um, so I recently read a study carried out by Birmingham City University that found that Islamophobic online cyber hubs were being formed which linked Muslims to the spread of COVID-19. And there were so many fake news and theories shared online stating that mosques were responsible for the spread of COVID-19 um, and Muslims were not observing social distancing rules. And the study analyzed posts across various social media sites and found that a significant number of users across the platforms shared content portraying Muslims as a key contributor to the spread of the pandemic. Um, now, not only has this been used to create the other of Muslims, but it is also very worrying because it has the potential to translate into fiscal hate crimes. Now, as with um, the relaxing of the rules, this could potentially see an increase in hate crimes. And um, that's why I think, particularly with the pandemic, social media has hindered um, diversity. Thank you. Go ahead, Roshni. Yeah. Um, also, you know, what Shabnam said, I think um, it's very different in the US because obviously, like we've seen, I think globally, we've seen an increase in ESCA hate crimes, East and Southeast Asian hate crimes because of COVID-19. Um, but also that's another thing that no one really talked about in like the mainstream media was how Muslims were being blamed for COVID-19 spreading, which is really interesting because I remember, I think like the week the US went into lockdown, I was forwarded an article that kind of had like a top-down structure sort of infographic. And it was explaining that like there was this Islamic conference that happened in India and then that's when it began spreading. So. Yeah, definitely. I think like with social media, kind of like going into my answer here, I think with social media, it's very easy to um, keep spreading false news or like infactual things. Is that a word? Yeah. But um, I also think that, so I am the diversity and inclusion director at Dear Asian Youth, which we're like this online advocacy thing um, where we have a pretty big platform. I think it's like 112K followers on Instagram. So it's like we have a presence, but also my work with Dear Asian Youth has given me a different perspective on this. I think that, you know, social media is a is like a tool. It is a very positive tool if you know how to use it. Um, I think that a lot of the times when things related to public policy or just like international affairs in general, I think there's a lot of convoluted and just unnecessarily hard to read articles out there that make this information so inaccessible to people who aren't studying politics. Like I'll read some New York Times articles and I'm like, oh, like I don't understand this. Like what what do they mean? Um, and so it's like, yeah, information is very inaccessible in my opinion. So I think social media comes in because you're able to kind of like simplify this information. But I also think that with social media, you face this um, issue of oversimplification. Like I've seen the Israel-Palestine conflict so summarized in two slides. And it's like, how can you do that? You know, like there is no humanly possible way to like sit here and talk about the genocide of Palestinians in, in two slides, right? Um, but that being said, I think that um, 
a lot of the times what I've learned on Dear Asian Youth is that there's a lot of young people behind this. And like, I'm saying that knowing that we're all in like our 20s. So we're young, but like, I mean, high schoolers. So Dear Asian Youth was founded by a 16 year old girl and she basically like turned it into this whole thing. So I work with a lot of high schoolers and I also work with a lot of working professionals. And it's like interesting to see that dynamic. But I think that like, with social media, it's like, you can make this information accessible, like I said, but everyone comes from a different level of understanding. So, you know, when I was growing up, I didn't really have information about my identity at my fingertips, the way a lot of people who are in my shoes do now, right? Like you can go online and you can find an, infogra an infographic about just about anything. But I also think that my issue with social media lies in like the infactual spreading, but also in moderating comments on, um, posts. And I think that's something that people don't pay a lot of attention to. But it's like, if you go on any like, infographic social media, there are a lot of nasty comments that people actually walk away from thinking that like, like, a lot of the comments we get on duration youth, like, Shabna mentioned, very Islamophobic, like, they will turn anything, it'll be a post about like, Southeast Asian culture, and then someone will like, just resort to Islamophobia in it. And it's like, it's really weird to see that. And obviously there's a lot of hatred, just like not beyond Islamophobia in our, under our comments. So it becomes hard to moderate it because it's hard to read those things. Bumby, we haven't heard from you in a bit. <laughs> Go ahead. Oh, Go ahead. Wrap this up. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Okay, so I think um, Roshni really nailed it on the head. Like social media is a powerful tool. It can bring people together, but it can also divide people. Um, but what I have found is social media has enabled access to a lot of information, as she's rightly pointed out, that you wouldn't have. It's also created a platform for people to start journals. So, like, there's this dude, I, um, I don't know him, but he started this thing called Republic Journal, where a lot of African, Nigerian, and other African, um, whether you're an academic or you're in a, a working professional, can write articles on things that are going on on the continent from the diaspora or on the continent and also from a global scale to see how that affects us, which I thought was fascinating. And from them, I've seen another one who does like, it's one called Stairs Business and it's all about Nigeria's economic presence and how the global economy is affecting Nigeria and how Nigeria's, how that affects Nigeria's economy and all of that just information that as I'm writing my dissertation or even reading for essays, I have access to these that I would never have thought of gaining. And that's just because they have a social media presence. I follow these people on Twitter or Instagram. And so that for me is an excellent way to get information. But with social media, there are echo chambers. So my echo chamber is slightly more diverse because I'm, I'm a very curious person. So I tend to follow my curiosity. So I follow anything and everything that I think might be interesting. But a lot of people aren't like that. So a lot of people are, you know, stuck in a particular line of thought. And that's one of the dangers of social media because you, you're constantly fed information that reaffirms your biases, reaffirms what you already believe without any proper checks and balances. So yes, it's good for, you know, sharing information, bringing people together, but it's also very deeply polarizing. And in the last couple of years, we've seen Twitter, Facebook, they've all come under fire from different governments you know, for polarizing politics, for spreading fake news. And some governments have used it to kind of curb freedom of thought and expression as well, because Twitter for some countries are a way of them gaining access to the world saying, our country is really killing people here, 
they're, you know, infringing on our rights. So Twitter is an outlet for them, for their democracy. So it's finding that balance that is, I think, a big issue with social media, but I think it's a very, very, very powerful tool. Thank you so much to UCL Changemakers for making this project possible this year. We'd also like to thank Kathy Elliott, who is our staff advisor and helped us through the grant application process to make this feasible and diversify our curriculum. And we really hope to continue this podcast through um, the next academic year. We have brand new hosts who are students in the UCL Political Science Department. See you then. Bye. 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 <laughs>